Tenants have been announced for East Nashville's The Wash. We're going to discuss the future of cap rates. And empty offices and empty hotel rooms are not slowing investors down whatsoever. So that and more on this week's episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. I am your host, Tyler Cobble, and today is May 24th. The last episode we'll be doing in May. Let's go ahead and dive on into the Nashville market. So this is coming at you from the Nashville Business Journal. Chartwell Residential plans 800 units on former Watkins College of Art campus. This is in the metro center of Nashville, uh, very close to downtown, uh, just north, uh, really. Uh, Let's see what they got for us here. Uh, Chartwell Residential said a two-phase multifamily project is in the works for the property that used to house Watkins. Phase one, which would develop land anchored at Great Circle Road, should break ground later this year. No construction loan has been filed as of today. Um, this was interesting. So Belmont actually ended up merging with Watkins. Uh, I guess this was last couple last year, a couple years ago. And a few years ago, a few years ago. So they they bought the Metro Center campus uh, for about twenty two and a half million dollars. Uh, well, technically, Chartwell Chartwell bought that. Um, from them. And Metro Center has long been a, a very interesting growth uh, pocket, I guess, because it's not really a corridor. Uh, growth pocket, neighborhood. Uh, you know, it used to actually be the dump uh, for, for Nashville. So they ended up moving that. You had, you had to let it settle for a little bit. And then now it's actually become, uh, because of the proximity to downtown Nashville, a very desirable um, area to be. Uh, looks like it's one of the few districts that developers are eyeing as Nashville expands. Uh, it's a couple miles north of downtown, uh, just south of the Cumberland River. So it's it's actually bordered by the river to the north. So there is a natural barrier up there. And it is mostly commercial, I would say. Uh, it seems that more and more uh, multifamily or residential housing projects are getting announced up that way. Uh, but there's just not a whole lot. Um, I know, sev- I mean, there's several really big developments that have gone on there, um, like like Duke Metro Center. Um, so let's see. Other developers, such as New York's Samara Road, had previously offered to buy it, uh, this site, uh, after plans to merge with Belmont were met with resistance. Um, yeah, that was that was kind of a controversial vote when that came up. But uh, that's a that's a pretty big deal. I mean, twenty two and a half million dollars for that site um, in Metro Center. You could see it kind of sits on this little. Is is that a man made lake, Andy? Um, I'm pretty sure most lakes in, or aren't all lakes in Tennessee man made lakes technically? Yeah, I mean, I think that, Yeah, I'm pretty sure that this one was um, was dug out. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, so that that'll actually be a pretty nice campus um, or a pretty nice little project. They'll have good views. I mean, 800 units is going to be one of the largest residential developments that close to downtown, if not the largest. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The only other one that I've seen that's remotely that close is the 700 units on Dickerson Pike near the like 1500 uh, pocket. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's a lot of units. You know, we were, we were talking about this earlier. I mean, most multifamily development projects are around, what, 250 units in Nashville on the large side. So this is a pretty big deal. That's a lot of units for for just one site. All right, let's move on. This is another one from the Nashville Business Journal. One city land sells for $10.4 million. Phoenix developer paid $10.4 million for land on Charlotte. 
seemingly towing plans for apartments. So one city is this master plan development that is kind of between, it's just off of Charlotte. Um, if you're familiar with the area at all, it's, it's basically between Charlotte Pike and Centennial Park. So a great little pocket, uh, very accessible. Um, Alliance uh, Residential Company actually bought it. Uh, they're based out of Georgia, I believe. Uh, it's 1.6 acres at Two City Place, across from the Shea Apartments. Um, looks like, according to Metro Filings, they are planning 261 apartments on the site. Um, they did not respond for comment. Let's see. Um, yeah, Far From Alliance's only project in Nashville. The firm, which develops under the Broadstone brand. Um, you know, you've got Broadstone Germantown. There, I mean, there's Broadstones all over the place. Uh, let's see. They've got South Broadway, The Nations, The Gulch, um, Germantown. Uh, oh, notably, it's Germantown Complex. Uh, Broadstone Stockyards sold in November for $105 million, which was the sixth largest commercial deal of the year. That's crazy. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, hefty number there. Uh, let's see. The firm's one-city apartment plans uh, were initially reported in January of 2020. Let's see here. One City uh, broke ground more than seven years ago. It was one of the earliest indications that out-of-state developers were hungry to enter Nashville. As of 2020, the district had an estimated price tag of $400 million. They've got a hotel there. It's actually a, uh, gosh, I can't remember the flag, but it's a fitness-oriented flag, which is really cool. They were the one of the first developments in Nashville to utilize um, shipping containers as actual viable space, which I thought was really cool. Uh, they actually took uh, several shipping containers, combined them, and turned them into a CrossFit gym. They did also this place called this restaurant called Avo um, out of the shipping containers, and then they had several smaller, more fitness-related uh, uses in there. There was a cycling studio, Full Red Cycling was in there. Um, it's the Element Hotel. Element Hotel. Awesome. Um, Full Ride Cycling was in there. I know D1 Sports was in there. They had a couple of volleyball courts, so, um, and, and of course, several office buildings. It's a, it's a really cool development. Yeah, and I wanted to pull out, too, Tyler, the, the price for the land. That is really high. That's $6.5 million an acre for 1.6 acres for $10.4 million on Charlotte Pike. I mean, and obviously this is part of a master developed community, but Tyler and I were discussing this a few weeks back as well. I mean, used to be probably five, five years ago, land on Charlotte would trade for like a million an acre. And now it's trading for in a, in a master developed site given, but six and a half million an acre. That's crazy. It's quite the price tag. I mean, to put that in perspective, we're looking at, you know, around $4 million an acre on Gallatin in East Nashville, probably about 2 to $2.1 million an acre on Dickerson Pike in East Nashville. Um, it, it, that's, a, that's a really good number. Uh, now, if you get to closer to downtown, of course, you're in the double digits. Um, but still, $6.5 million an acre is, is, is a very impressive number. Moving on, this is from the Nashville Post. Tenants announced for ex-car wash site on the east side. Um, so Andy and his team actually work on putting all these articles together. This is uh, So I don't really see them until right before we go live. This is actually one of my projects uh, that we just announced. So thank you for the plug, Andy. I appreciate that. Uh, we're welcome. really excited about this project. Um, the wash, we've been working on this since August. 
we actually we acquired the site back in December. We announced our plans uh, a couple months ago, and we finally just announced the tenants that are taking the space. So basically, what we are doing is taking a this old car wash. Uh, that is is kind of it's on a major thoroughfare, but it's very close to the neighborhood. It's right at the entrance of a neighborhood, and we're turning each of the bays into micro restaurants and uh, a bar. So I'm actually opening up the bar with my partner on this project, and then we leased the other five restaurants um, to local startups. So we were very we were hyper focused on this either needing to be their first location or their second. We didn't want anybody that had already expanded quite a bit. We wanted this to be somewhat of an incubator for, you know, the restaurateurs that we felt deserved a chance. So we uh, really excited about this. This was totally unintentional, but we ended up getting 100% of the restaurants are either woman-owned or minority-owned, which is really cool, right? Like, it just goes to show that something like this is giving an opportunity uh, to everybody. So... Uh, bay number one is going to be two Peruvian chefs, which is currently operating out of a food truck. Soy Cubano, which I believe is just doing pop-ups. I don't, I don't think that he has a food truck. Uh, the Pokey, which is a uh, poke spot down in Brentwood. They've got one location. Uh, Tootsie Lou's Tacos, which is a startup. Uh, that group just moved here from Austin, Texas. Uh, ESP, uh, which is the second concept from Eastside Bon Me. And Bay 6, which is what we're calling the bar. So... That's, uh, that's pretty much it for the wash. We're really excited about that. We're actively looking at um, other locations. Um, to put this in perspective, you know, I'm, I'm saying micro restaurants. These are 380-square-foot bays. So if you are watching on YouTube, uh, you can actually see there's, al- there's no seating inside. These are actually walk-up counters. Uh, there is seating in, in the bar, basics here, and then all of the seating will be outside. The uh, parking spaces are all 10 minutes max. So those are intended to be to go and delivery only. Um, and, you know, there's there's on-street parking if you want to come out and hang out for the day. And if so. you're a Nashville resident, I mean, this is going to be great food. If Regardless of the fact if I worked for Tyler or not, I would be <laughs> I would be at this at this project, man, because, you know, to be able to explore it, there's three Latin restaurants and two Asian restaurants and a bar. I mean, where else are you going to go? get all these different mixes of cuisine and be able to pick and order things from different different stores it's like i'll get one taco from one place and then i'll get a little asian wrap from another place and then that's kind of the idea of this style of of development is that we're we're making it better for everybody involved it makes it easy for restaurants to get started it brings a sense of community and it helps you know the tenant or the customer be able to try a lot of new different things so hopefully all of our nashville fans out there will will come and stop by when we're opening in august yeah i'm, I'm really excited for the opportunity uh that it's going to present like families and teams as well because um you know you, if you've got multiple people in a group or kids that are very picky about eating i mean there's something for everybody here which is which is really exciting it's basically a food hall it's just not inside um, on point is asking how long does the conversion take? Well, uh, if we didn't have to wait on permits from Nashville, it would take, I don't know, four or five months. Uh, we're, we're probably going to end up looking at like seven months. Really? I mean, we're, we really, I acquired it in December. I was hoping we would get started in like February or March. We really didn't get started until last month. 
with the demo. So, you know, we're, we're getting, you know, we're close. So we're aiming for August. So if we start, you know, six months, give or take. All right, moving on to Market Watch. Uh, this week is a, I mean, look, it's no surprise. If you keep up with the Urban Land Institute, this is a city that has been at the top of many lists. It is one of the few that is actually outside of the Sun Belt. Um, it is on the towards the West Coast, not quite West Coast, uh, but towards the West Coast. So we are looking at Denver. Pull this up real quick. So Denver, Colorado, it's considered a new boom town alongside Charlotte, Dallas, Nashville, Portland, and Seattle. Uh, those are the six favorite boom towns, uh, which attract far more than their share of smart young workers. This article is, of course, the Urban Land Institute's Emerging Trends. Again, I say this every week. If you are interested in investing in other markets outside of your market, this is one of the best reports to go read. They spend a lot of time putting these together, uh, and it's got some pretty incredible data. So Denver is ranked number 13 in terms of overall real estate prospects. Again, if you look at almost all of those other ones, every city on there, Salt Lake City is the only other city that is towards the West. I mean, you look at Raleigh, Durham, Austin, Nashville, Dallas, Fort Worth, Charlotte, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Salt Lake City, DC, Boston, Long Island, Atlanta, San Antonio, and then Denver. I mean, there's just nothing going on the West Coast really in that top 20 um, other than Inland Empire and Phoenix. So, you know, Denver's, Denver's coming in strong there. They are number nine in terms of home building prospects. I would imagine Denver is is somewhat similar to Nashville. It's a little bit sprawled, but you also have um, a lot of those natural barriers that prevent um, development in, in specific areas. So um, Denver is considered an 18-hour city alongside Austin, Charlotte, Minneapolis, Nashville, uh, Raleigh, Durham. You get the point. 18-hour cities are basically those cities that are not they're not 24-hour cities, right? It's not a New York City. It's not an LA. They are kind of in between. Right. I mean, they've got some pretty incredible prospects. Uh, they are bustling cities. They've got, you know, booming educational hubs, uh, you know, some some burgeoning industries, especially tech. Uh, and they are, you know, there's always something to do. That's what we say here in Nashville. I mean, when I was growing up, uh, there wasn't a whole lot to do. And now there's always something to do. Let's see. Okay, in terms of the local market perspective, they are a 3.97 out of 5. They're ranked in the top, I'd say top 8 um, for cities. So let's go ahead and jump on to this next article from Motley Fool. So the 2021 Denver real estate market investing forecast. Known for its hip neighborhoods, robust tourist attractions, thriving restaurant and brewery scene, and gorgeous mountain backdrop, which is absolutely true. Denver is such a beautiful city. Denver appeals to many renters who crave great food, city life, and fresh air. Isn't is is Bruce buying a place in Denver, or is he looking at Boulder? I thought it was Salt Lake City. Oh, maybe he is looking at Salt Lake City. Okay, I swear he had talked about Denver at one point. Maybe he was just doing a uh, doing a real estate mastermind out there. That's Bruce Peterson, the apartment guy. If y'all don't watch our, we have another podcast called uh, Commercial Conversations Over Coffee, where he and I just talk about commercial real estate. Uh, let's see. Why invest in Denver? Denver is a draw for both seeking city life and outdoor enthusiasts. Its reputation as a health-conscious city is particularly appealing to young professionals and families. 
You know, that, that's in, becoming incredibly uh, important The as time goes on. You know, these cities that are focused on the health of the residents or that offer many different ways for residents to be healthy, that seems to be a, a rapidly emerging trend. Um, you know, you look at like Chattanooga, right? We talk about Chattanooga all the time. I know it's a really small city, but the fact that you can go, you know, hang gliding, rock climbing, hiking, biking, kayaking. I mean, you can do whatever you want, but then you can just go right downtown and go to Starbucks. It is really cool. And that's very appealing for a lot of people. It actually gives you a reason to get out and go enjoy nature. It's kind of a balance of the city and suburbia and, you know, rural America, I guess. Uh, let's see here. Folks who may not be all that well established and therefore more apt to be renters than homeowners. Uh, it's, that's appealing for investors, right? Let's see. Oh, this is interesting. Unemployment is high. As of January, 2021, the unemployment rate in Denver was 7% compared to nationally 6.3%. Probably a lot of pot smoking going on out there, right, Andy? Uh, <laughs> a high jobless rate could mean that in the near term, fewer people will be in a position to sign leases. That's surprising. I wonder if, if this article is going to go further in depth into why unemployment is higher than the national average. I mean, Denver is a very strong, you know, business district. So uh, it'd be interesting to see if they talk about that. Housing inventory is extremely limited. As of January 2021, there was only a 0.7-month supply of available homes on the market. And what is a healthy market, Andy? Two to three months? Six months, Tyler. Okay. So just a little bit, <laughs> just a little short of a healthy market. Three uh, weeks of inventory? Yeah. Yeah. Three weeks. Um, you will be engaging in a bidding war with other buyers. Of course, every city that we are highlighting on the ULI Emerging Trends list is a city where you're going to be bidding against other people. I mean... You know, if you've got 0.7 month supply, that's very similar to Nashville. And in Nashville, you're getting 20 to 30 offers on every house. They're all going for over asking. It's I've never seen anything like it. Um, it's it's remarkable. We saw a house recently that just went for like 22 or 23 percent over asking. And like these are agents that know what they're doing. They're pricing it based on comps, and people are just coming in and bidding it up. It's it's remarkable to watch. Uh, home prices have soared. Let's see. The median home price in Denver is $455,000. That is really high. I mean, Nashville's around three fifty, and that's jumped up significantly in the last 10 years. Uh, that's a year-over-year jump of 10%. That's re- that's really, really high. Um, I mean, it went from four hundred to four fifty. essentially, is the way you think about it. Yeah. God. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, the good the good thing is there's upside for investors there, right? Because fewer people are in a position to buy in Denver. So they're going to have to rent. So you know that there will be rental demand. Um, okay, this talks a little bit more about the unemployment rate. Given the number of restaurants and bars in Denver, though, it's not surprising that 7% uh, unemployment. Um, as the industry has been notably hard hit during the pandemic, I would also imagine that, that tourism – and and skiing, like outdoor, you know, fishing guides, hunting guides, all that kind of stuff is a pretty booming industry there. And obviously, you know, this winter season was not a good one. So that, that probably has to, a bit to do with it. All right, this next article is from Fox 31 uh, News. Fox News. 
I don't know, KDVR. <laughs> uh, Denver's real estate market breaks 16 records in April of 2021. How do you break 16 records? That's remarkable. The Denver Metro Association of Realtors Market Trends Report shows 16 sales-related records were broken last month. One of the records is the average price of homes being sold. Wow. So we just told you that the median household was $455,000 in Denver. Uh, the average for single-family homes sold in April was $623,825. $175,000, give or take, over median. That's, that's crazy. Let's see. Most expensive homes for sale in Denver. Denver is appreciating at 11.2%. And is the hottest market in the country with real estate valued at 78% higher than it was in the 2008 peak. So that means if you bought in 2008 and you stuck through the, you know, the downturn, your real estate is worth 78% more now. The increase in price is a matter of supply and demand. We are in the midst of a housing frenzy in the Denver metro uh, areas right now with low supply and high demand. Again, I guarantee you it's it's people from the West Coast that don't necessarily want to move all the way to the East Coast. And Denver, Denver, Salt Lake City, Phoenix, those are the, the three most popular Western cities for them to, to be moving to right now. Let's see. 65% of Denver homes sell over asking price. At the end of April, there were 2,500 residential properties on the market, uh, which was the lowest April on record. Wow. Lowest April on record for 2,600 homes. Previous low was in 2015 with 5,000 active listings. So less than half of the previous record. That's remarkable. To sellers, the market is strongly in your favor if you're looking to cash out at a high time. If you're staying in the Denver metro area, you'll want to do your homework up front and be ready for the challenges of the buyer side position. Let's see. Properties listed at a million dollars or more. Continues to be a seller's market. Luxury properties valued over a million dollars are the fastest selling property across Colorado. That tells you the kind of buyer that is moving into Denver. Let's see. Colorado real estate, among the most expensive in the country. According to the report, the luxury market has experienced more growth than any other segment. In 18, 19, and 20, year-to-date closed sales of properties over a million dollars were 649, 654, and 661, respectively. So far, oh my gosh, so far in 2021, there have been 1,353 closed sales over a million dollars, more than double the number of the past three years. Wow. I mean, and what you're highlighting there, Tyler, is, again, exactly what you said. That speaks to the people who are moving, right? The people who are moving, who are leaving these states, leaving California, leaving New York, generally have money to do so. Right. I mean, obviously, there are people who, you know, they pack up their bags and they, you know, get a hope and a prayer and, and they move to a new place to try to find a new job. But by and large, the majority of these people coming in from all over, the people coming to Nashville are people from California and New York who have a lot of money. And that's why we see bidding wars, people paying cash over asking. They don't care. They it literally what the market says. They don't care. Right. They'll. They're all buying these million-dollar luxury homes uh, in Denver here, right? The fastest-selling segment out of all the homes. It's not. It's not the normal people who trade and move up and down from your starter home to your median home. It is just people from out of town with endless bags of money. 
Yeah, and the crazy thing is they're they're selling these absolute luxury homes in California, right? And then they're just moving that capital onto something else. And they're looking at these homes in Denver probably the way that people look at homes in Nashville. And they're like, wow, this is really cheap. I can get 4,000 square feet for what? I mean, you know, Nashvillians are looking at that going, I would never pay that. <laughs> and that's why they are getting left behind in the real estate <laughs> boom. All right, moving on to the, the future of commercial real estate. So... Let's see what we got here. It's shelves empty. A former Walmart is targeted for reuse. This is from Globestreet.com. Heading to Walmart to buy some supplies? Look around because you might be able to pick up part of your last mile distribution real estate strategy. Uh, that's that's no surprise, right? I mean, you look at uh, these, these bigger retailers, the ones that have pivoted to utilizing their retail locations as a um, also a distribution facility for local shipping so that they can handle that same day or two day um, shipping without interfering with their current logistics programs. Uh, they're the only ones that are surviving, right? Like that's kind of what Best Buy did. And that is the only reason that Best Buy was able to pivot away from getting absolutely crushed by Amazon. And I actually remember when the pandemic first hit, uh, you know, Best Buy actually had a better shipping program and better logistics program than Amazon did. I remember looking at stuff from Amazon and it saying, you know, hey, you know, Prime is supposed to be two days, but, you know, they don't even have it in stock. Or uh, it would take, you know, a week or two weeks sometimes to get something. So I would just go down to Best Buy. Uh, when you're a retailer that big, it's not unusual to evaluate the market or reevaluate the market. Let's see. Maybe they moved to a different location in the market because uh, the old one was underperforming and they don't want to invest in its in it as a retail store. Drop shipping fulfillment service Completeful just purchased a former Walmart center in Lafayette, Louisiana, according to the Acadiana Advocate. The building is in an opportunity zone, vacant for two years, and reportedly listed for $5.75 million. Um, this is actually very similar. So we, we uh, every Wednesday, we underwrite a deal that we feel is a pretty good investment. And last week or the week before, we underwrote a vacant, or not a vacant, but a, a dark Walmart um, in the southeast that we think is a phenomenal investment. They basically shut the Walmart down, and uh, they still have a lease for the next 10 years. So because of that, it's actually being sold at a pretty good cap rate. Um but I have a feeling that Walmart is actually going to be using it as a logistics center because they're not planning on subleasing it. So I, I guarantee you this is what they're doing. Let's see. The final price was $3 million for that 228,000-square-foot spot where they can consolidate operations from three buildings into one. Uh, let's see here. With the extra space and power, we should be able to lower prices across the board, ramp up more volume with current products, and expand into a few final product, a few new product areas. The Walmart building was the perfect space. These discarded buildings aren't just in Cajun country. In 2020, a former Juneau, Alaska Walmart that had been empty since 2016 finally went on sale for $6 million, far under the city-assessed value of $8.3 million. Um, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Keep an eye on those because, you know, Walmart has pretty incredible credit. I mean, Andy can speak to that. And these will make good investments and you know you never know walmart may approach you for a buyout so they can get out of the lease uh, and then you can just go rent it to somebody else that needs a distribution facility that's basically all they are i mean look at what a big box retailer is if you actually walk around in the store it is a big box it is a distribution facility with nicer lighting and better flooring that's literally all it is so 
Let's see here. Moving on. This is also from Globe Street. Where are cap rates headed? I get asked this all the time because we, we just keep seeing compressions in cap rates and interest rates just don't seem to move. They are so low. Um, so let's see. We see cap rates rising to an average of about 6.5% in 2022, and this will be good for commercial real estate investors and developers. Will it? Let's see. Cap rates have been compressed to historic lows since the end of the Great Recession in 2012, and this has been primarily due to the drop in Treasury rates, courtesy of the Fed. COVID pandemic created a very uneven CRE market in 2020, with overall transaction volume down about 50% and valuations stressed. Oh, no. Looks like we do not have uh, the full article here. Um, Let's see. Office and apartments located on high cost. So, We're not going to be able to dive fully into this article, but I would imagine that what it is saying is that with interest rates likely to rise in the next few years, cap rates are going to rise with it, and that will actually open up the buying opportunity for many more investors, right? Because as cap rates increase, the value of the property decreases, uh, and some of these groups are going to have to sell no matter what, right? I mean, that's just the way the debt is structured. You typically have five to seven years. And they may not want to go back and go through a, a reevaluation uh, of the, or a revaluation of the property uh, because now it's technically going to be valued lower, which means they'll have to put more debt on it, and it just wouldn't make a lot of sense for them. So the ahead. argument from this article, Tyler, is essentially that with the cap rates rise for a reason, right? And what the reason is is that people expect interest rates to rise. And why do people expect interest rates to rise? They expect interest rates to rise because they expect inflation to rise. So the argument is essentially that if inflation is rising, that's actually good for real estate as a hedge against inflation because it's one of those assets that, you know, you can print more money. It's a lot harder to print more buildings. And as a hedge against inflation, inflation too tends to happen in a hot economy when the economy is hot. And so what happens when the economy is hot? Real estate also does well, right? So regardless of rising cap rates, not only will there be more buying opportunities, but that will favor or indicate favorable underlying trends for the real estate industry as a whole, because if inflation is high, you know, the economy is going to be doing well. That's good for tenants. That's good for business owners. That's who can get more space, et cetera, et cetera. Yep, exactly. I mean, that makes a, that makes it just, it changes the buying environment, right? I mean, right now it's very difficult to go to justify buying a lot of stuff, right? Because I mean, it's, you know, if you get down to a three cap or under a four cap, which is very common for new construction in Nashville right now, it doesn't make any sense to, I mean, unless you're a REIT or a hedge fund or, you know, a life insurance company that just needs to place capital somewhere, um, it, it makes it it makes it tough to buy. All right, this next article is from BizNow. Connectivity goes from luxury to necessity for multifamily developers. Whether they are adjusting to the prospect of more residents working from home or to the increased necessity of internet connectivity that was highlighted by so many aspects of life moving online in one fell swoop, pretty remarkable how quickly the world shifted to working online. I mean, if you really think about it. 
it was, you know, I'm sure that there was, it was not smooth transition for everybody, but it was a relatively smooth transition. Um, you know, necessity, right? Multifamily owners and developers are making changes to meet residents' shifting needs. One of those has been to turn tech amenities that might have been considered a perk in the past into near necessities for new projects. Let's see. One new addition for market rate developers is areas in the building where residents can work remotely in a shared space. There's actually a, a spot downtown. Um, gosh, I forget what that building was called. It used to be called the Nido. Uh, it was an Airbnb, like you could rent there and you could also Airbnb your unit. But they have a sh- like basically a co-working space in the building, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, another one, the residences at Capital View, uh, that's in the North Gulch. They've got basically a shared a co-working space within the building. Um, they, they were obviously ahead of their time because those projects were both delivered way before COVID. Um, but let's see, these co-working areas are designed so that at night they can still be used as communal gathering spaces. And that's what they were. I mean, they actually had like little areas where you could hang out with friends and sit around and play games or do whatever you wanted to, which is pretty cool. So it wasn't just like office space. They're designed in a more contemporary luxury way. Um, rather than just straight ahead, single use office space in the building. Let's see. There's a digital divide, which is the gap between those who have easy access to the internet and computers and those who don't. And it looks like, uh, innovative housing opportunities is working to, uh, to change that. Though statewide, 91% of Californian households have access to high-speed internet and 85% of, of them have access to a computer. Those numbers are much lower for low-income houses. A study from the University of uh, Southern California uh, found 29% of households earning less than 40000 a year have no internet connection. That's really high if you think about it. 29, like 30% of households making under forty k um, and can only access internet through a smartphone, which is considered being underconnected since smartphones have more limited capabilities than a computer. Pandemic-related closures of schools, libraries, and businesses underscore the important role these places often play in increasing internet connectivity for low-income Californians. I mean, think about that. All these kids that, you know, had to work from home or do, you know, take class from home, um, and you don't have internet. Like, what do you do? If you don't have a computer, what do you do? That does that, that, I mean, that is a problem. We would have thought in the past that those were luxuries, but they are becoming part of the basic program. A similar situation is occurring on the market rate front. The Irvine company's Marsh said, The Irvine company has been investing for a few years in installing fiber internet in its complexes and has it now in almost all of their communities. We do think it's important to have tech-enabled properties units and common areas to provide the bandwidth that can support ever-increasing resident demands. I mean, that just makes sense, right? I mean, we're, we're constantly as a society moving more towards, in the, you know, utilizing the internet, working, you know, somewhat remotely or working a hybrid form. So everybody needs connectivity. I mean, it's, 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 it's a utility now, right? I mean, we, we, you know, Andy and I've been talking about this. It's, it's interesting because, you know, Chattanooga, basically treated fiber internet as a utility service. The city went in and installed it throughout the city, which is relatively unheard of everywhere else. Um, But that's how it should be treated. It should be treated as a utility and not necessarily as a a private service that, 
you know, you, you're lucky to have, right? Okay, moving on to private equity deal dive. Let's see what we've got on the front of private equity. This is from Globestreet.com. $1.5 billion distress hotel fund comes to the market. Distress hotels have been a very hot topic over the last year because obviously hospitality got hit very hard uh, by the pandemic. And so there were a number of firms that threw together uh, these distressed hotel funds to try and scoop up uh, and be opportunistic uh, with with these you know struggling assets. Sovereign wealth funds, family offices, pensions, endowments, and foundations, and financial institutions were among the investors. Let's see. Sertari's Management and Knighthead Capital Management have closed their first co-managed fund. The CK Opportunities Fund, which focuses on travel, tourism, and hospitality companies that are facing acute liquidity and financing needs. At $1.5 billion, it substantially exceeded its initial target of $1 billion during the six months it was raised virtually. That's pretty remarkable to overraise by not only by 50%, but to overraise $1 billion by 50%. Clearly, there was a lot of demand for that fund. Sponsor said it received strong report from a diversified global investor base, including sovereign wealth funds, family offices, pensions, endowments, and foundations, and financial institutions. Let's see. The fund has already allocated approximately $650 million of capital across four investments. That's impressive. Uh, Looks like Azul Brazilian Airlines, Latam Airlines Group, Mystic Invest Holdings, and Hertz Global Holdings. Um, The fund's investment committee consists of Greg O'Hara, Colin Farmer, and Jeff Nettleman from Sertari's, and Tom Wagner, Ara Cohen, and Andrew Shanahan from Nighthead. Let's see. They've expressed optimism that there is a long tail of opportunities in the private market that seek capital after a year of severely reduced travel volumes. Again, they got hit really, really hard. In general, distress assets have been slow to come to the market. So that's that's one other thing that was frustrating for a lot of potential investors was, uh, you know, because of the PPP loans and idle and and all of everything else from the government, which is good, right? I mean, it's good. Uh, most of these property owners didn't, they weren't forced to sell just because they were struggling, right? Uh, and there were a lot of people that had thrown a whole bunch of money together trying to take advantage of, of those opportunities, and they never really came. Let's see. Yep, that's pretty much it. They're, they talk about a, co- a company that's filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They talk about... Um, a couple of portfolios that are market, being marketed for sale, but I mean that's that's relatively it. I mean, Andy, what are your what are your what's your take on the hospitality industry and, and these opportunistic funds? Tyler, I mean, this fund specifically is not only investing in hotels, but as you saw, the, com- the companies that it listed, it was airlines and Hertz, right, and rental car companies and airlines, and so hotels is the other kind of third leg of the travel and tourism segment here. Look, the money is coming for them. And I think that as stuff starts to recover, I mean, in the United States, I think we're about to tick over to 50% of people have had vaccinations in the US, um, like within the next couple of weeks. And so you're seeing COVID cases in the United States. Some states are reporting no no longer reporting deaths, already down to zero deaths in some states. 
the tourism industry in the US is coming back really heavily. Where we're struggling is internationally and the markets in the United States that cater a lot to international travelers, right? America is probably top 10 or top 15 in vaccination rates in the world. And you're even, even Europe is far behind us. You know, obviously most of Asia, Latin America, Africa are also substantially far behind. So that's where the, the difficulties lie in the hotel space. It's in those markets that cater to international visitors because there are no international visitors. But if you're a primarily domestic target for tourism, I mean, you're seeing great numbers right now. Things are coming back. COVID in the United States, thankfully, really, really is, you know, falling. The rates and infections and everything are falling precipitously, which is allowing a lot of tourism to come back and start flooding the market already. And we're only halfway through 2021. I mean, think about when these funds deploy their funds, uh, deploy their money by the end of the year and next year, how, how much even better it will look. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, guys, I want to apologize real quick. I just realized that uh, my comments weren't showing up when y'all were talking in the live chat. So I'm going to catch up on these real quick. On point seven, saying it's a neat concept, talking about the wash. Thank you. I appreciate it. We, we're really excited about it. It's, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun to work on. It's a, it's a very unique project. I mean, there's nothing really like it, obviously. So we've, there have been some uh, interesting hurdles to jump through there. Uh, but we're hoping to, yeah, and he's nodding his head. He's like, hell yeah, there have been. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we've, we've, we think that we've about cracked the code um, and we're actively looking for, for the next location. So stay tuned for the wash two and the wash three. Damian Baker saying, I see people talk about renting Airbnb units in cities like Nashville. How can we research Airbnb rentals or how can we estimate rental revenue for this? That's a great question, Damian. I think that there is a, um, Oh gosh, what is it? Air DNA. Let's look it up. Air DNA. Yeah, it's a great. Yeah, so Air site. DNA. Okay, well, I don't know. Is it .co? Yep. Okay, Air DNA.co is a great way to do that. Um, you you can pay for a membership, I think, but you you may actually have. Um, there may be. I think that you used to be able to look at the Nashville market for free. Uh, let's just let's just type in my zip code. That is not well, how's that? That wasn't even close. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we'll just use this one. New Bern, North Carolina. So if you go over here now, of course, you know there's a couple of like sample markets that they will give you, um, and, and I think for free. But then if you want to, if you want to actually like start looking in your market, you're going to have to pay for it. Um, yeah. See, view unlocked market. But this will tell you, okay, well, here's the average daily rate. Here's the occupancy rate. You can't really see what's just to the right of the occupancy rate, but it says revenue. Um, so average revenue. You can see that there are 182 active rentals. Um, rental channel, 73% Airbnb, 26% VRBO, 1% listed on both. Now, that's very interesting, right? Because the, the demographic that's going to be renting on VRBO is pro probably not the demographic that's going to be on Airbnb. Um I would have them on both. We always had ours on both. We do not manage Airbnbs anymore, but we used to. We had about a dozen um, right before the pandemic happened um, with my property management company, but we decided to focus on commercial and multifamily instead of that. But this, we used AirDNA all the time when we were pricing out units. And you can get very granular into the zip code. You can get into how many bedrooms it has because, you know, the, the, 
the amount of bedrooms it has, you know, the average doesn't really matter, right? Like the average is cool. So, you know, okay, well, I'll probably get $130. But if you look at rental size, like the majority are ones and twos, right? So those are smaller. So that's going to bring that average down significantly. There's very few four bedrooms. I was always a fan of four bedrooms, at least in Nashville, which is a very tourist driven market. Those would always get rented by groups and they would pay a premium for them. Uh, but yeah, so air DNA is a good spot for that. Otherwise you can call, I mean, feel free to, to DM me on Instagram. My handle keeps popping up in the bottom left-hand corner every now and then. Um, it's at commercial in Nashville. I would be happy to get you connected with a, a group in Nashville that actively manages that we still trust and use, um, so that you can have a conversation with them of, you know, Hey, look, if you're going to buy one, uh, what to, what to look for. That's the fun in, in doing these. We can I can just share my screen and get going on that. Uh, let's see. Where were we? Right there. Okay. Um, on point says, four cap, really? Yeah, really. I mean, Nashville is ridiculous. Um, it, it's, it's not – I mean, not everything's going for a four cap, right? But, I mean, even, like, older properties that aren't that great, like, man, you're still seeing them going for, like, six caps, uh, which is always surprising to me. Uh, and yes, that is below the national average, uh, like significantly. I don't know. Andy, do you know what the average national cap rate is? I mean, it's a tough question to answer, but. Yeah, I I mean, we were just looking at that document, right? Of saying national average cap rates would probably head towards the six and a half range. That's after about a one point bump. So they're probably in the mid fives right now. Yep, Exactly. Jennifer says, hey, Tyler and Andy, great info tonight. Love that. Glad to hear it, Jennifer. Uh, appreciate the feedback. We spend a lot of time putting this together, so it's it's always good to um, to get some feedback from you all. Uh, to Gallup 2, what's your guys' process for filling your vacancies? Well, I, I own a commercial real estate brokerage and a commercial property management company, so we have brokers working on every single listing um, that we have. And I, I, in my opinion, hands down the best way, to get a vacancy filled is to hire somebody else to do it. The great thing about using a commercial real estate broker to, to go out and find tenants one, they don't get paid unless they produce, right? So they are very heavily incentivized to go out and find somebody for you. They have to pay for all of the marketing, right? So money in your pocket. Uh, they also will pre-qualify all the tenants on your behalf so that you don't get, have to waste time with tenants that just aren't even worth talking to, right? Because, you know, I mean, we had somebody reach out that, wanted to buy a uh, like a $400,000 piece of property and they only had $10,000. So it's like, well, I'm not going to go present that <laughs> to to my seller because it's not even worth having the conversation with them. And so it, it, it really saves you from a lot of that headache uh, doing that. So that's what I would recommend. Um, if you would prefer to do it, uh, you know, by yourself, um, I think that we do have a video in the archive um of uh i think it's just like how to find tenants for your commercial space let me see if i can just pull it up on youtube i think if you just type in how to find tenants yeah there it is how to find tenants for commercial space the three best ways um and that'll pull it up there's me seeking for tenants <laughs> so your search history was also showing tyler i saw how to renovate a limo in there. how to renovate a limo <laughs> yeah look at that we bought a 1987 lincoln limo and I'm turning that into my mobile office. So there we go. All righty. Uh, well, I guess this is actually PropTech. No. No, it not. it's not? Okay. Well, it's not PropTech. Well, let's go back. <laughs> PE deal dive. Okay. 
investors bet on commercial real estate undeterred by empty offices and hotel rooms. As I was saying, we've been saying this since the beginning of the pandemic. Look, office space is going nowhere. It is still a very popular investment. And same with hotels. I mean, you saw that that group just put a $1.5 billion fund together from experienced investors who know what they are doing that want to buy hotels. So clearly, both of these asset classes are in demand uh, from the right groups that know what they are talking about. U.S. commercial real estate market is in remarkably solid shape. I mean, which kind of surprises everybody how well the market is really doing. More than a year into the pandemic, high-rise office buildings are largely empty. About one out of every two hotel rooms is unoccupied. Malls are struggling to attract shoppers. And what I will say, this is very location-specific. I went to the Opry Mills Mall last week looking for a pair of shoes because um, my I just tore up my boots when we were on, on a chop site the other day. Did you get some Ariats? I did not. They didn't have – no, no. I didn't uh, – so I was looking for um, – Oh, what are they called? The the uh, Chelsea's Chelsea boots, yeah. and they they just they didn't have any. They only had the suede ones. I was like, I can't wear suede Chelsea boots on a job site. That's anyway. The mall was absolutely packed. Like it was just, it was totally crowded. You go down to Broadway in Nashville, absolutely packed. You look at the the hotels in Nashville, eighty percent plus occupancy. So this does largely depend on where you are located in the country. And they may say that here in a second. Uh, Yet by most measures, the U.S. commercial real estate market is in remarkably solid shape. Prices fell far less than after the 2008 financial crisis, which, I mean, obviously, uh, and are already rising again. The number of foreclosures barely increased. Pension funds and private equity firms are once again spending record sums on buildings. So it just it didn't scare anybody at all, which is pretty remarkable to think about. Uh, the market's resilience shows how the federal government's aggressive efforts to support the economy kept landlords from suffering steep losses. Banks have also offered delinquent property owners some slack rather than foreclosing aggressively. I mean, that was the great thing about this pandemic is that everybody recognized that this was an event that was completely out of out of anybody's hands. And they worked together to figure out how to get through it. Right. You know, tenants were given money to pay rent. Right, which that rent went towards paying the, the mortgage to the bank, which means that the banks didn't have to foreclose, which meant the banks could keep lending money. Right, I mean, it just it kept that actually j- just giving the tenants money to pay the rent is honestly what kept everything from falling apart. Uh, it meant that the the tenants got to stay open for business. Right, I mean, there's there's so many great things that came out of that. Uh, the support will not last indefinitely, and there could be a rude awakening for investors when it starts to wane. Real estate owners will have to contend with remote work's threat to the office market, which is BS in my opinion, the dearth of business travel, and the broad decline of the mall business. I think I think everything in that in that paragraph is BS. If you know anything about, I mean, look, the office market is doing just fine. Most companies will not actually be able to work remotely, but they will offer some sort of hybrid work. Business travel is going to do just fine. I don't think that people are just going to stop traveling. I mean, there's so many meetings that you have to have in person. There's so, you know, I mean, we're, I travel to other cities just to see what other kind of commercial real estate is going on out there. In the broad decline of the mall business, those are being repurposed for mixed use opportunities. So, you know, that doesn't mean that there's anything struggling uh, out of the ordinary, right? I mean, malls, malls deserve to get redone it's just a it's that that model is so broken it's not the 1980s anymore tyler is that what you're saying 
Yeah, I mean, you think about like what malls were in, were originally created to do is to have this high density of retail uses so that you could go shop for everything in one place. Well, now that you can do that online, uh, what value do they really bring? I mean, it's it's got to be a convenience factor, which means you've got to have residential units and office office space on site. My opinion. Let's see. Apartment rents rise, perks and discounts fade. Um, again, not a surprise. Let's see. Real estate prices fell 11% March to May last year, according to commercial real estate analytics firm Green Street. Prices since July have increased 7%, which has erased more than half of their pandemic declines. Uh, That turnaround stands in sharp contrast to 2008, when prices fell 37%, more than three times. Uh, Took years to recover. This time around, the office, retail, and lodging businesses look worse off than in 2009 in many parts of the country. But public spending has been much more robust. Wealthy people are also largely employed, but being cooped up at home led them to save more of their earnings. Much of that money went into stocks and bonds, pushing prices up and interest rates down. That has made real estate look cheap in comparison. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, hey, everybody's taking that stimulus check and and investing it into cryptocurrency and, (laughs) and GameStop. Uh, JP Morgan to, to the moon. Or, do you have any Dogecoin? I do not. I do oh, not advocate God. for anyone. To I thought we were going to have. I thought we were going to have to have that conversation. <laughs> uh, Dogecoin, for those of y'all that don't know, was was it's literally a meme currency. It was created as a joke, and uh, people or <laughs> investors are doing the exact same thing to Dogecoin as they did the GameStop and just buying it for no reason, even though there's inherently no value in it and pushing up the price, which has been remarkable to watch. Uh, but it's inevitable that it will go down because they, how many coins do they print a year? Is it a billion coins? Uh, I think they're at like a three to 5% inflation rate. I'm not sure the exact number. Yeah. So it's, it's inevitable that it's going to go down. Anyway, JP Morgan, Salesforce joined growing list of firms dumping office space. Well, I mean, look at that. JP Morgan has moved largely online. Salesforce can work largely online. But you think about all the companies that are still signing. I mean, Oracle just announced 8,500 jobs and a tower in Nashville. Amazon, 5,000 jobs and two towers in Nashville. So there are certain firms that are doing just fine. They're continuing office space. And then Google was one that was notoriously, you know, hey, everybody's back into the office as soon as this gets lifted. So I think, I think a lot of these companies will start to realize that their work culture it will be devastated uh, by the work remote. I mean, it's just I have friends that work remote, and, and some of them do great, right? Some of them love it because they can be around their dog more. They can do chores or whatever. But I have some that they're miserable because they, they don't, they're not around people as much as they'd like to be. Um, let's see. Jennifer saying many people and businesses left New York City, but many more moved in and took advantage quickly. Yeah, their prices dropped so fast in New York City. It was it was pretty remarkable. Um, I think at one point the apartment rents were down like ten or fourteen percent, maybe fifteen percent, which is insane. So like if you wanted to get a good deal on an apartment in New York City, that was a that was a great opportunity. Problem is you got to put up with a with a closed down city. Uh, I'm sure it's better. We were up in Chicago a couple weeks ago. And uh, people were at least out and about, but it was it was still very much shut down, which is kind of wild to see. People view it as inflation protected. Let's see. Um, I guess we're talking about commercial properties with leases that include rent increases that keep pace with inflation. 
Private investment funds focused on real estate are already feeling flush. They had $356 billion in cash reserves in April, according to Prequin, 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 which was about double what these funds held at the end of 2009. In a recent survey by Hodges, Weil, and Associates and Cornell University, 29% of institutions said they want to put a bigger share of their wealth into real estate, while 5% said they wanted to reduce exposure. I mean, real estate is just such an excellent asset to have in your portfolio. I don't know why you wouldn't want it. Let's see here. Um, I mean, you're, you're diving more. I mean, the article just goes on and on. Uh, KKR is head of real estate equity in the Americas. Justin Patner said he likes the local market. The building's lease runs for an additional 13 years, and any vacancies can be converted to high-demand lab space. So, again, it, that just says it depends on the type of space, right? And it depends on the type of worker. If you have a worker who's, you know, the type of work that they are turning in can largely be done remotely, then, yeah, maybe it doesn't make sense to have them in the office. But there are some aspects of everyday work. I mean, and, and, you know, Andy can attest to this. Like, there's some meetings that we cannot have remotely. Like, we just Mm -hmm. cannot have those meetings over Zoom. We cannot have those meetings over a conference call. Um, There's so much synergy that you get from being able to walk across the hall and say, hey, Andy, can you throw this together for me real quick instead of having to send an email? And then maybe the email gets missed. And then he emails me back and asks a question. And then I miss the email. And then, you know, it just it becomes a it becomes an absolute mess. Yeah, I emailed him like 10 times for a document <laughs> sharing permissions. Don't, and don't then, email me. <laughs> it wasn't until we were in, you know, in the, in car, the car together. Today, and then he was like, oh, I'll get that to you. But yeah, I mean, look, the, Everybody knows not to email me. I'm so bad about email. <laughs> the last thing I want to highlight for this article here, Tyler, is kind of what you have on the screen right there. There was the two, there's three points about why real estate's going to do well. Number one, real estate is inflation protected, right? People view real estate as good against inflation because, as I said before, harder to build buildings than it is to print virtual money, which is infinite at this point anyway. Number two, uh, there whoa. is, whoa, I don't know there's why that, that paragraph just said, There's that paragraph there that said there's technical reasons uh, compelling large investors to buy real estate because stocks and bond prices have risen faster. You know, real estate looks cheap. Great. And then there's the number three. When stocks and bond prices have been up, you know, since the pandemic, you know, up 100% since the low, real estate prices are not up 100% since the low. So if you're these institutional funds, they literally have to have a certain percentage allocation and therefore buy more stuff and therefore price go up. It's it's kind of funny to know and learn about how these institutions affect the pricing. And this is why we go through this P deal dive where we see there's billions of dollars out there on the sidelines waiting to invest into commercial real estate. And they have certain fund allocations and portfolio allocations they have to hit. And that naturally will cause prices to to go up and keep the market afloat. Even if there were struggles in certain areas of the market, which there certainly are, but as we are trying to highlight for you guys as well, if you can be opportunistic, if you can figure out how to take an opportunity and transform it to something else, I think you can do really, really well right now. Yep, absolutely. All right, moving on to PropTech. We are for real this time when it comes to PropTech. 
So WeWork reports $2.1 billion loss in Q1. Not surprising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Including $500 million from settlement with Adam Newman. So this is an, according to an article from BizNow. I mean, we've talked about WeWork multiple times, and, and it's just it's a company that can't seem to make any money. Uh, WeWork may be turning over a new leaf as it prepares to go public, but it is still losing prodigious sums of money. The co-working startup turned giant lost $2.06 billion in the first quarter, according to a quarterly earnings report filed by Boex Acquisition Corp. Almost $500 million of that loss came from a settlement between WeWork parent company SoftBank Group and WeWork co-founder and former CEO Adam Newman. So, man, he got a nice payout. The settlement reached in February to avoid a March trial was the second largest loss on WeWork's ledger in Q1. The largest, at a net $553 million, is a combination of debt service and interest payments with a change in value for warrants held by SoftBank, which, I mean, is their parent company. The largest loss at the third largest lost loss at $299 million came from impairments due to early terminations of leases as the company worked to reduce its long-term liabilities problem is a company like this is structured so that it just inherently has long-term liabilities. You know, we've, we've talked about the, the co-working model before, and I'm, I'm still very much of the belief that the only way that this model works is if they own the building. You've got to own the building. Um, yeah, Canty jumping in. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's good. That's very true. Uh, just because co-working is a new thing doesn't necessarily mean it works. And I know, I mean, there are plenty of co-working spaces in Nashville that do very well. I mean, Center 615 is one of those. That's actually where we got our start. They are always full. I mean, always full. Um, and they do really well. But, you know, we work for whatever, it, for whatever reason, just it can't get it together. Let's see. Boax, a special purpose acquisition company. Imagine that. Look at that. We talk, I feel like we talk about SPACs every week. SPACs are a joke, in my opinion. It is the sketchiest way to take a company public. It's basically a, hey, if you lose money, um, don't tell anybody who you are as you're going public, and uh, we'll still we'll still take you public. I don't know. That just, gosh, I don't know why that seems so sketchy. Doesn't that seem sketchy? Is it just, am I the only one that thinks that? It's because what a SPAC is, for those who don't know, essentially it's a blank check company that goes out to acquire another private company. So if you buy shares of a SPAC before they announce who they're going to buy, literally you're just buying shares of nothing. It is a bag of money. Literally, that's what it is. You think of it as a bag of money. Usually when you buy a stock, you want to buy shares of a company. You buy shares of a bag of money, which also happens to be your own money. And a lot of the time, SPACs, because they merge with companies with poor financials, companies that otherwise would have wanted to go public on their own without having to pay private equity groups a certain percentage of their money and their capital, right? Because that's what they have to do. To, to get public on a SPAC, they have to give up a bunch of money. So you have to ask, why are they willing to give up certain amounts of equity to go public through a SPAC? Well, usually it's because they can't meet disclosure and financial requirements to go through a typical IPO. Does that typically lead to, <laughs> you know, yeah. happy valuations for you as the investor? Probably. I mean, not. come on. If you, I mean, look. If you're going to invest, like, if WeWork Whip did a traditional IPO and you saw, oh, they just lost two billion dollars this past quarter, no one would buy shares of that. So, I mean, that's that's why. I mean, gosh, I don't know. 
WeWork had about $2.2 billion of liquidity as of the end of the first quarter and expects to reach $3 billion by the completion of the merger with BOAX. The size of its quarterly loss, nearly quadruple that of Q1 last year, is in part due to the one-time costs of the Newman settlement, which is $500 million, and its lease exits. But the company's free cash flow for the first quarter was negative $663 million, which was $35 million worse than in Q4. I don't know why. I don't know. I keep I keep laughing. It's not funny, but I just I, we we've talked so much about how broken this model is and how broken this company seems to be, um, and yet they they keep they keep going. Uh, WeWork's operational reporting painted a slightly rosier picture, with global occupancy e- inching up to fifty percent from forty seven percent in Q four and gross desk sales rising nineteen percent from quarter to quarter. That's not good, by the way. That's, I mean, 50%. They're, they're, they're not even covering their expenses, right? I mean, there's no way they are. WeWork's occupants, I mean, obviously they're not. They're posting negative first quarter. WeWork's occupancy and sales numbers in the filing included its India and China businesses, neither of which is part of the company aiming to go public. So that's <laughs> essentially a manipulation of their of their revenue right there. They're like, they're intentionally <laughs> that's, leaving that's them off the books. that's what I'm saying about these facts. They can literally, they're like, hey, we have, uh, you know, $100 million in revenue, but like 20% of it's from India and China. That's not actually part of our business, but hey, we're going to report it. Yeah, I mean, come on. It's, yeah. Anyway, there you have it. There's your, <laughs> your sketchy corporation of the day. <laughs> All right, this next one. Also from BizNow, Oxford Properties sues WeWork for $1.8 million in back rent at downtown location. You chose these intentionally, didn't you? No, like, you, let's just, I would never do that. <laughs> let's just talk bad about WeWork for 15 minutes. All right. Oxford Properties Group is suing WeWork for more than $1.8 million in back rent, claiming the co-working giant broke a contract and abandoned its large downtown office space. I mean, according to the article we just read, not a surprise at all. Looks like they're charging WeWork with breach of contract after it abandoned its space at 745 Atlantic Avenue. The complaint states that WeWork left its 131,000-square-foot space in February on a lease that runs through 2029. I mean, how does that – so we had a tenant actually do this to us a few years – this was like seven years ago. It was a law firm that we had occupying about 3,500 square feet. And they they were able to move out overnight, over the weekend, basically, uh, and disappear. And it's like – you know, they didn't, they had like three years remaining on their lease. And when we spoke with them, they said, well, the partners, the partnership dissolved, everybody left. Uh, if you want to sue a bunch of attorneys, go ahead and sue us. And so we said, well, that's probably not worth it. But when you are a billion, apparently billion dollar company, uh, it's kind of hard for you to run off and hide. So I don't know what they were thinking, just abandoning this space, thinking they could get away with it. Uh, let's see. Canty, oh, Candy's jumping in on the, on the SPAC. Profit off the IPO, flipping small companies without fixing the problems. That's yeah, pretty, pretty – I mean, yeah. Like, hey, how do we make money on this company? Let's just trick a bunch of people to give us some money, and then we'll, then we'll finally make some. Eh, I mean, that's pretty – please don't sue me, WeWork. Uh, <laughs> WeWork paid a yearly rent of $7.8 million or $650,000 per month, according to the suit. 
The cost of $59 per square foot at the steps of the South Station falls roughly in line with market rent rates for the neighborhood. Let's see. Oxford claims WeWork said in January it would vacate the site by the end of February, informed members to remove their own property, and used large moving trucks to remove all WeWork property, including its sign outside the building. Wow, they really abandoned it. Notwithstanding landlord's first default notice, tenant abandoned, vacated, and surrendered the premises and failed to cure its arrearage. Let's see. WeWork at one time cited as Boston's second largest office occupier with 1.5 million square feet has 15 Boston area locations after closing three as co-working has struggled during the coronavirus pandemic. The shuttered locations are 745 Atlantic Avenue, which is the property in question here. One Milk Street. It's a really weird address. One Milk Street and 51 Melcher Street, representing a combined 209,000 square feet. <laughs> Candy said they can't afford to sue you pro bono. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, hey, they're losing $600 million a quarter. They probably don't have time to bother with somebody like me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, Tyler, one one last thing I want to point out here, and, and we'll get off the hate on WeWork train, but – Talk about their business model. Talk about the problem here, right? You just said it. They're renting. The promise of WeWork is as a WeWork, I'm, a, I'm WeWork the company. I go to a landlord. The promise is, look, I'm about to take so much square footage of your space. You need to cut me a deal, okay? But what WeWork did is they went out, signed a bunch of leases. They did not get a good deal. They signed it at market rates. They literally signed a huge amount of space at market yep. rates and they essentially what they did because a lease a long-term lease as you see here is a liability because you have to pay that it's essentially debt you have to pay that over time otherwise you know you break it and you suffer prepayment clause that people are going to sue you right for whatever seven million bucks a year in rent they're not just going to let that walk away for free over the next eight years so if that's the case we work built its brand by using they just essentially signed a bunch of leases with their infinite capital from Saudi Arabia and from Japan. And, but, and they said, hey, we're this huge company. But actually, all they have is a bunch of essentially debt payments as leases. But it's not even debt payments to pay down a building. It's debt payments to just pay owners and I'm valuing my company size by the amount of debt and money that I owe other people and rental payments. And that is why WeWork failed. But we've talked about a few cooler models here, not just owner-occupied um, co-working. You know, yeah. there's those ones that do uh, income sharing. And there's ones where, you know, if you're a restaurant, right, and you, you're a nighttime-only restaurant. And you open at what? Probably four or five o'clock, but your daytime, you're nothing is you, nothing's going on, right? There's the startups that say, "Hey, we'll monetize that space during the daytime, and turn that into co-working space because it's a cool restaurant and it's you know it's probably got nice furniture and arranged seating and stuff." And the you know the restaurant's not making any money off of that anyway. And they said, "Hey, you. I mean, you can essentially have it for free as long as you make me more money than what I'm paying now. It's like it's going to be good for me." And that's the types of models of co-working that I think are going to pop up more and more as we see, you know, the the demise of WeWork here. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, look, the the inherently the model makes sense. 
right? Like go out and get a big space and then lease it to the people that don't want to go out and sign a long-term lease, right? Because how many people are there that are kind of stuck in between the, I don't really want to work from home, but I can't really afford to go, you know, sign a five-year commitment. There's a ton of that. It's just, I mean, WeWork has, has gone, they took the wrong approach. I mean, like Andy said, you can't pay market rate on 131,000 square feet. I mean, they, they need to have a conversation with whoever's running up their real estate apartment. If y'all need somebody to come consult you on your real estate, give me a call. All right. Moving on to reading REITs. Let's see what we've got here for you today. Timber REITs, lumber shortage in flames. Holy hell, lumber has really, really gone up. It's, what, over 300% increase in the last year? I mean, it's been remarkable. Uh, there's multiple reasons for that, right? The supply chain got disrupted, but also the factories got shut down uh, because of COVID. So it's been uh, it's been really, really, really tough um, to to produce lumber. Reignited by the red hot U.S. housing market, timber REITs and lumber producers have caught fire since mid 2020 as lumber prices have soared to record highs amid a historic supply shortage. Can you imagine how much money those REITs are making right now. I mean, just any product. If you have any product and all of a sudden that product increases 300% in one year and you are sitting on a massive supply of that product, I would be selling every single bit of it. Caught flat-footed by the velocity of the rebound in lumber demand from home building and remodeling activity, sawmills are scrambling to catch up as producers invest in building immediate and long-term capacity. Overheating concerns? Soaring lumber prices and the outright inability to source lumber have added fuel to surging home values, but also has forced some builders to delay projects. They're really leaning heavily into the uh, into the wood and fire uh, euphemisms here. Recent or uh, <laughs> yeah. they got to have some fun, Tyler. They're, they're yeah. writing articles about reeds, man. <laughs> it's, it's true. You got to try and make it fun somehow. Recent commentary suggests that bottlenecks may be beginning to ease, which is good news for these REITs and the broader housing industry. Q1 earnings results show that timber REITs are starting to fire on all cylinders. Um, For investors that can tolerate volatility and value inflation hedging attributes, long-term fundamentals look compelling amid historic levels of demographic-driven housing demand and record low housing supply. I mean, look, Timber has gotten to a point where it is so expensive that we are actively exploring alternative methods of construction on an 18-unit housing development that we're doing. I mean, we're looking at concrete. We're looking at steel. We're looking at a combination of steel and wood. I mean, it's it's crazy to see that we've gotten to a point where steel is even remotely viable for construction, right? Because it used to be you only used steel when you had to, which is basically in commercial construction. And you never did it in residential because it was just so much more expensive. Well, now it is marginally expensive, right? Like, Andy, you're talking, what, 5 10% difference between steel and lumber right now? So, you know, can you – I mean, is it worth maybe spending 5% or 10% more on your product to deliver something that is a little bit stronger, is termite-proof, maybe better insulated – like, yeah, you can kind of tell a story there that may be able to get you a, a 5 to 10% premium on the sales price. I mean, look at that. Look at that number. Uh, lumber for the last, what is that, 20 years has been relatively close to the same price. I mean, uh, barely fluctuating at all if you look at this. 
it spiked in 17. There was a hell of a lot of construction going on, but I'm sure the supply chain had to have been disrupted or something going on then. But look at this. I mean, it was it was averaging around 300 U.S. dollars per uh, was that per board foot, and now it's up to over like 1,700 dollars a board foot per a thousand board feet. Per thousand board feet. Yeah, that's of course. I mean, that's Gosh, for one board foot <laughs> per one board foot. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's actually more expensive than gold. Um, so, I mean, that's just remarkable. Look at this. Okay. Baldenex, Baldenex at sawmills. I mean, sawmill industry lost 30% of capacity after the housing crisis and still hasn't fully recovered. So if you think about that and just the long-term viability of the business, it's like we knew sawmills, what? had could have 30 percent more capacity than they do now and how many more people live in america now versus you know, 12 years ago how many more people are able to buy homes now there's a four million you know home shortage in the united states from cost of labor land everything going up materials going up so you know, it's looking good for looking good for the lumber reeds yeah Kenny's saying getting close to aluminum studs price. I mean, yeah, that's like, that's the crazy thing. Like it's close to, I mean, you know, this metal fabrication actually is starting to make sense. Look at this North American lumber end uses. I did not know that repair and remodel was the, the biggest use of lumber. That's actually really surprising to me. 40% compared to new residential at 31% industrial at 23%. So industrial would just be the manufacturing of anything else. We call it furniture, call it cabinetry, whatever, uh, non-residential 6%. So I guess non-residential would be just commercial, building out commercial space. That's obviously way smaller because most commercial, you know, due to code, you have to use metal studs um, for, for fire performance. Strong demand and record low supply of housing. You know, of course, I mean, look, you've got a, an insane amount of people that are looking to buy homes. As Andy said, there's a massive shortage and Builders are scrambling to build. So, you know, not only do we have a shortage of lumber inherently, but then everybody's trying to build new homes. So we have even more of a shortage of lumber. Wow, look at that. Home Depot versus Lowe's, same store sales. That's amazing. I mean, they're, for those of you listening on the podcast, they were averaging around, I don't know, 5% year-over-year growth for the last five years. And then you get into 2020, and it's over 20%. I mean, imagine being a big-box retailer and having 25% growth, too, when usually your margins are, like, at 1% or 2%. Right. All of a sudden, you have massive profits. Yeah, I mean, that's that's remarkable. Cool. All right. Well, that, that probably about sums it up for, for timber REITs. I mean, you get it, right? Like, look, lumber's expensive. REITs are doing well. Uh, but everybody's kind of ready for that to, to drop back down so that it, it makes it. I mean, if lumber was less expensive right now, it would it would explode the housing market even more. Um, but it's it's tough. Oh, here we go. Five reasons to be bullish on timber REITs. Link to the housing recovery. Of course. Housing demographics. 
aging U.S. housing stock, right? There's a lot of houses that are just too old. They're getting torn down, so we got to do new construction. Unmatched size and scale. Interesting. Timber REITs are the largest landowners in the United States, owning more land than the smallest five U.S. states combined. Hmm. Holy crap. I didn't know that. Uh, limited interest rate sensitivity. Timber REITs are one of the few REIT sector that are not highly correlated with interest rates. That's interesting. Candy's <laughs> saying going to buy some lows. Yeah, buy some stock. Uh, if we're going to say the, the reasons to be bullish, let's say bearish. Production shutdowns, obviously. Natural disaster risk. I mean, definitely. Environmental policy. You know, we're moving away from wood and timber and stuff like that. Commodity characteristics and trade policy risk. Interesting. Well, there you have it for reading rates. Andy, what have we got going on today with the wild card? Today, Tyler, and thank you everybody for sticking around to the end here for the CREI show. This wild card section, we always try to talk about something cool, something unique in the real estate market, something that usually you wouldn't be covering or hearing about when it comes to investing in real estate. And today we're going to talk about scooters. And these are not your old Razor scooters that you would play on while you were a kid. These are those electric scooters that took the entire U.S. by rage about three or four years ago and then subsequently disappeared. But now they're coming back and they're coming back for real estate properties, especially for multifamily office and a lot of these other a lot of these other types of properties where people are starting to realize, hey, the reason why these scooters were all the rage back in the day and the companies that made them were Bird and Lime and Jump and Uber Bada had its own brand of scooters. There must have been like 10 brands of scooters that were around. And if you guys remember, they passed a lot of legislation about them, kind of banning them, kicking them out before they you know, really started to <laughs> start to go away. But obviously, the point of the scooters even existing was to solve what is called the last mile problem, right? Let's say there's a big parking lot somewhere, but it's half a mile away from my office, okay? And I need to commute from my house. I drive to the parking lot, but the office half a mile away. You know, I have to walk another 10 minutes to the office. So if I get on a scooter and said that I can cut that 10 minute commute to a two minute commute, saves me a lot of time, all willing to pay, you know, five bucks to jump on a scooter to get over there. And it's but it's too close to make a Uber worth it. So that is solving the last mile problem that getting you from the very last bit, right, the last mile from point A to point B. So Scooters are coming back to multifamily and office properties because, you know, people potentially, when they didn't have to go into the office, were already, you know, around their home, around their neighborhood. If they lived in a live, eat, work, play type environment, which is something that we're big advocates of, and you don't need to use your car, you can just use your scooter to get around. So, for example, if you lived on a mixed-use complex with your grocery store, you know, walking distance technically – you might have to walk 15 minutes. Hey, maybe it's easier to get on a scooter and scoot over there in two or three minutes, right? Also, people are more amenable, obviously, to being outside. A lot of California developers, especially, are installing docking stations for electric scooters, right? Residents use scooters to make weekend trips to get an iced tea on the main drag. Wow, that sounds really fun. It's like we're not, we're not skateboarding down anymore. We're using our scooters to get the iced tea on the main drag. 
I didn't know that's a term that people use, the main drag, but I guess I'm a I'm an uncultured southerner from Nashville. Anyway, the point is to say that the convenience of being able to get somewhere quickly was the promise of scooters, and that is something that's very valuable too. Maybe it's not zipping down, you know, intersections and highways like they used to do in Nashville. They used to literally cross from Midtown to Downtown Broadway. And for those of you who are not familiar with Nashville, you have to cross a huge, very, very busy highway. And a lot of people would get into accidents there because that's dangerous. So maybe that's not what scooters were meant to be used for. Instead, to go around little complexes and apartment buildings and office campuses that really allow that sort of interaction to speed up, right? They say, we're entering a new era of work centered on choice, well-being, varied worker schedules, and preferences will require office buildings to consider how they're addressing micro-mobility needs among their tenants, right? And as more employees work from home, giving apartment dwellers more daily transportation options could be more common among multifamily providers, right? So there's this company, Ridey, that provides it for, they're called micro-mobility firms, this company, Ridey. Um, they provide apartment rental, uh, I'm sorry, scooter rentals, specifically for office and multifamily properties to serve as amenities for their tenants, right? How do we, as real estate investors, we're always trying to think, how do we stand apart from the pack? How do we attract more tenants and potentially offering things like micro-mobility scooters are the solution, are one of the things that people are going to need. And here is Spin, another company that that did scooters. According to the Urban Land Institute, one of our favorite groups, 36% of micromobility trips replace car trips, which is a lot. I mean, if you're driving, you drive 36% less just because you hop on this scooter, all of a sudden, potentially your quality of life is better. You're outside, you're getting fresh air, you're spending less money, you know, all those things are, are pretty good. So obviously, all, all these scooters is pretty cool. And a lot of complexes like Facebook and Google are going to be using scooters to get around their complexes. Here's another company. This startup helps Airbnb operators generate extra income for my friend in the chat earlier asking about Airbnbs. This company Mount equips short-term and vacation rental operators with a micro fleet of electric scooters to offer their guests, which can bring in for the Airbnb operator $10 per day on average. And obviously it's going to cost more money for the tenant, right? The renter to be renting that. But look, if it costs me nothing and this company is going to come in and offer a service to provide scooters on demand, essentially that is associated with my property. And it gives me $10 per day on average of essentially found money. I'm all in. That's the type of stuff that I love. And this is what we're talking about earlier with Tyler. It is the profit sharing and making it a no brainer for both the company like this mount and the landlord. When you align their incentives and everybody makes more money together, that's the types of win-win situations. So these micro fleets of two to four scooters come packaged with helmets, locks, insurance that covers the rider, scooter, property, and host. These micro fleets open up a new amenity and new revenue stream as the property owner gets to keep, get, keep a piece of the revenue generated from the scooter. So that's pretty cool. You have to pay upfront for a kit. 
you have to pay a $30 per month fee. And then it's kind of like a percentage share. Mount keeps 70% of the scooter rental income until hosts receive their investment back. And then it drops to 55%. So if you invest in that money up front and people are actually using the program, then you're going to make a lot of money in the long run. The question here, obviously, is does it actually work? Are people actually going to rent it? And, you know, of course, Mount's going to pull out one example of them that it has worked for them where their core locations are in high demand for local curated service and unique transportation. And if it works for them, then it works for them. So that's something to explore potentially if you're looking into right scooter rentals. And here's the last company that we pulled up, Tulu, T-U-L-U provides renters with access to household products. And this was a very innovative model when it comes to real estate. Available in New York and Tel Aviv, Tulu provides household items to those living in close quarters or without flexible budgets. Everyday products from vacuums to PlayStation consoles, screwdrivers, projectors, and more are available on demand for use on an hourly basis through a rental agreement established with the company and hosted in a storage room within your building. So essentially, as you see here on this picture, you need a thing of luggage, you need like one of these, these are those Dyson fans, they're actually pretty good. You wanna rent Settlers of Catan because your friends are coming over, but you don't wanna spend the 30 bucks to buy it. Uh, that's one that I don't think that I would ever do. But if you wanna play Catan, you probably should just buy it. But the point is, is that sometimes, maybe you just wanna pay two or $3 to use the blender and you don't, you only make margaritas once a year and you don't need to buy a hundred dollar ninja blender and so you you know pay a few dollars when your friends are coming over to make margaritas so that's this type of service where they're renting out all these sort of household appliances including including scooters so i just thought that was a very interesting business model where essentially and tyler we've been talking about it, and you see they're renting out vacuums in case you don't want to buy a vacuum you can rent a roomba to go into your room Right, they have vacuum cleaners, Roombas, cooking products like air fryer, waffle maker, KitchenAid mixer, hosting projects like projector, folding chairs and tables and board games, as well as printers and electric scooters and bikes. So they choose a plan and every time they use a product is deducted from their account. Their prices are affordable and are a few dollars per hour. And they have a daily pass and weekend pass for longer rentals. So it's something that, you know, I get, you can understand. The most rented problems are Dyson vacuum cleaners, scooters, printers, drills right you might never need to own a drill in your life and if you're an apartment renter you might need to use a drill to hang up a picture you know once or twice a year do you need to spend a hundred bucks on a nice drill no maybe you spend five or six dollars and you rent a drill right so this is where i see services like this that make sense that provide amenities to the landlord they align everybody's incentives it's it's kind of cool and this is where I'm hoping the future of these kind of prop techie real estate or real estate adjacent companies are going, right? Essentially, what this is, Tyler, is living as a service. It is items <laughs> as You as, love as that phrase. Everything is a service. It literally is. It is the renting a drill as a service. It is using a vacuum <laughs> as a service. And, Tools as a know, service tools as a service it's a it's a pretty cool concept one that i hadn't come across before but you know i think it's something that could potentially grow as long 
you know, along with that other information we had about scooters and that sort of growth on those campus campus like settings, scooters might be coming back as a great way to offer an amenity if you're a multifamily or office developer or as an amenity for Airbnb owners where you can get extra income or to simply provide a service for your tenants that say, hey, I'm partnering with a company that's allowing you to get the stuff that you might need once in a while, but you don't need all the time. So thought these this, these sort of companies were really cool and wanted to share that future of scooting with you guys today. The future of scooting. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's, it's, <laughs> let's, let's get the uh, comments real quick and then I'm going to tell a story. Jennifer says, I'm scared to get on those things. Don't want to fall, LOL. Uh, yeah, we have seen some pretty impressive wipeouts, um, you know, that have gone viral in Nashville. So you definitely have to be careful. Candy Saint Scooter Station. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. I think it's, uh, I think it's really, really cool. Um, and then also saying a WeWork type space in the multi, that's becoming very, very, um, popular in, in apartment complexes now is, is a co-working space that's, you know, part of, it's just part of your offering as an apartment complex. Um, yeah, yesterday I actually took a, a, a bird scooter, uh, 3.1 miles. Oh. Yeah, we walked, uh, we walked a little bit, picked up some scooters and then rode them down to the park to, to Centennial Park from Wedgwood, Houston. And, I, you know, I'm a big fan of the scooters. I think that they solve a pretty great problem, right? Like I don't have space to, I don't want to buy a scooter. I also don't have space for a bike. Like I don't want to put a bike anywhere and then have to take care of it, maintain it and whatever. It's nice to be able to just jump on one of these scooters, pay like five or ten dollars, depending on how far you ride it, and just use it to get somewhere. I mean, they go fifteen miles an hour, so we got to the park in no time, which is pretty cool, and it's just a great experience. I think you know. Also, when you were talking about Tulu, like getting into those, you know, as apartment complexes get smaller and smaller, people want to own less and less, right? Mm-hmm. And so having you know on-demand rental things like that just makes so much sense and it also just increases the bottom line for the apartment complex which could increase the valuation uh which you know why wouldn't you want that as a landlord so anyway that is it for this week's commercial real estate investor weekly update if you are watching on youtube don't forget to like and subscribe so that we can keep giving you notifications every time we do go live, which is Mondays at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're listening on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review so that we can uh, get in front of more people that are interested in learning about the world of commercial real estate. And we'll see you guys next week.